0: Hello, health tech listeners. I'm your host this week, Justine Abson. This is the podcast where we tackle some of the trending topics, ideas, and best practice in health and social care. This week, I'm talking to Matthew Riley. Matthew has been a patient and care representative for Bradford District Care NHS Foundation Trust for over five years. He has a range of experience as a patient and carer across physical and mental health services. Matthew is passionate about platforming patient and carer voices and ensuring services listen and learn from care experiences. He is also involved with Bradford's Suicide Awareness Strategy and is a massive advocate of open, non-judgmental communication and how it can help to save lives. Matthew, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi Justine, thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. We're really excited to talk to you today. Um, You've got so many interesting things that you get involved in. So I think firstly, as a care representative for Bradford District Care NHS Foundation Trust, what is it that you get involved in and how did you get into this volunteer and work in the first place?
1: Yeah, so I'll give you a little bit around like the two key roles, what I do as part of a role. So I sit on the Trust's um, Mental Health Quality and Operations Committee and also the Trust's Quality and Safety Committee, what oversees both sides Care Trust, the Mental Health, which is inpatient and community based. And then community physical health and not 19 children's services across Bradford and it was Wakefield so we have quite a broad collection of services um I started off within the mental health care group initially because that was the services I were using and I tried feeding back my poor experience of care and it wasn't really being listened to mm. I'd speak to the occupational therapist they'd document my concerns but nothing ever happened, nothing changed. And then I spoke to my care coordinator in the community mental health team who said that the care trust were looking at boosting our engagement and wanted to be hear from patients at a much higher level and recommended that I got in touch with their engagement team. From there, I met with them, had a little induction and then became the mental health quality operations representative part of that role we looking at both inpatient and community care and ensuring that any changes policy changes and just general changes to care and as everything were happening that it was safe and it had a patient care representative for, as part of that a big part of that came with managing violence and aggression it was well, very much based on the amount of incidents what have happened but you never knew how many people were involved, what had caused that incident, what could have been done early to prevent it. And it it created that moment where everyone then started thinking a bit differently. You started seeing people instead of just numbers. And it made a big difference. Since I started, there's been an 80% reduction in violence and aggression. And it's become a much more trauma-informed approach in the way they're delivering it. and part of the work there is supporting other committees and other work streams in seeing how they're providing care, make sure it's got that carer representation, it's got that oversight from a patient or a carer and it brings their experience and I think sometimes it's that voice gets missed and they can help emphasise and share the voice of those frontline staff who look, always feel like they get heard to either.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it must be, I mean, it must be amazing to, obviously, you've had your own experiences, which we'll come on to a little bit, but to use your your own experience of, of not getting the right care that you needed to then almost put that into the most positive way you can and try and help other people must must be really rewarding.
1: Yeah, and one of the key roles I took after this were volunteering in the inpatient mental health ward. so that's often people who've been detained under the mental health act who weren't really sure what their rights were we're often being told that they lacked capacity and that it were in their head what was happening to them and they weren't being listened to and me going in as a volunteer really gave them someone else they could speak to they felt able to talk and you learn a lot of the concerns they had were related to Whatever deteriorated while they were in the community and caused them to become an impatient, and it was that we wanted to talk mm. through. And it kind of gave them that opportunity, and it gave the staff that bit of space where they could see feedback isn't always negative, it can be really positive, and it gives a good opportunity to learn. And it built really good relationships then between the staff and the patients. But you then see really good positive stories, and it gives those patients. A little bit of light at the end of that tunnel, they can see what could happen for them. They can, it gives them that bit of hope, and I think, no matter what happens within care, everyone always has hope. Everyone loves the NHS and wants to support it, as well as the voluntary care service and everything else. And it's looking at how, how can we provide that feedback, but ensure it's listened to and heard by the right people.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I'm going to sort of skip on to a a question that I was going to ask a bit later, because I think it it kind of fits that, you know, I think patient safety in general is becoming more and more important for NHS trusts and and healthcare settings. And how do you think people like organisations can learn from the feedback and implement these learnings from, you know, people like yourself, patients, carers, their families, and and kind of really utilise that to improve their services?
1: I think the first thing is culture change and it needs to move away from learning from complaints or learning from serious incidents. Yes, are always, unfortunately, they are always going to happen. People, there are going to be incidents that happen. But when I wanted to raise my concerns, I had to do it through formal complaint. That took two and a half years. It, took, it meant lots of people then had the same issues because it wasn't being reviewed because it was just in a queue. Whereas a more proactive, just listening to the feedback, listening to all that informal feedback we'll see on social media through NHS Choices, looking and theming and grouping that and what's just discussed between a clinician and a patient. A lot of people have suggestions on how it will make it that little bit better. And it's then looking at how you share that between different services within an organisation because many services don't talk to each other. And I think if we can get that working well within a trust and within a local area, you can then look at then expanding up further within their integrated care border, uh, ITS, and then much wider across England as a whole. But it's much more, I think, being open, being willing to listen and not becoming instantly defensive. It's looking at what is this person's experience, because that experience is valid. And it's just looking at what can we learn from that? So even if it doesn't improve for that person, it doesn't have the same impact for someone else and I think it's also becoming more trauma aware and that trauma affects everyone differently and what what's traumatic to one person isn't to another and it's how do you, it's being able to have those difficult conversations and not being afraid to have them because they're not a difficult conversation the more you have them, they may be uncomfortable but they're not difficult.
0: Yeah it's, it's moving things away from feeling almost taboo isn't it to actually this is completely normal as a conversation to have
1: yeah it's very much kind of like mental health has become over the last few years it comes much more talk about in general we need to have that open and transparency around any sort of health care and admitting when things might not be as well as we want to there's lots of challenges facing services so they're not going to be able to provide the best care possible and it's acknowledging we know there's challenges but how can we make sure that they're safe and that patients are getting the best care possible?
0: Yeah, and I th- you, you sort of alluded to it a little bit there, just, you know, people people do really appreciate our healthcare system and, you know, mm-hmm. those that work in it as well. They don't go to work to make mistakes and things. They they go to work to kind of do the best they possibly can. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think you're right with, with that kind of thought of, you know, how do we help them to almost give the best care possible, which is ultimately what everybody really wants.
1: Yeah, and it's it's having that more senior leadership supporting them as well, because it's often those frontline staff who get given the feedback, and it's how do they report that back? How are they being supported? How do trusts and services and management have that oversight? What are they doing to help those people on the frontline? Because a lot of patients worry about that frontline member staff's wellbeing, and they won't disclose they won't share stuff if you think it's going to be detrimental to them so it's how to create a culture of support and staff because that by default supports those patients as well
0: yeah absolutely um so you were at the patient safety congress last year um and you talked about mental health patient deterioration in acute physical health hospitals did this highlight the differences taken when it comes to patient safety in you know different locations different specialities? And can you potentially share some of the outcomes of, of those discussions with our listeners?
1: Yes, yeah, so it was a really interesting discussion because I'd supported some of our a liaisons within Bradford, which are the mental health specialists within the acute hospitals. So I kind of knew what the role was. I knew how they should have been being used. But I also knew they weren't getting to do their full role because not everyone within the acute hospital understood what they were there for a lot of it saw it as crisis management whereas it was much more preventing that deterioration within anyone especially within people who've received a long-term condition diagnosis so people who've been diagnosed with ms cancer there are a lot of people who their mental health begins to deteriorate they're not sure how to process it and that early support there could help the signpost them to really good care once they're part of that discharge and including them within part of that discharge plan would have made a really big difference to a lot of number of people because that hadn't been happening you could see within secondary mental health care services referrals had increased but also the acuity of the patient had because they weren't being supported at that primary first point of call and I think a lot of people recognize that that there's a lot more they want to do within physical health hospitals, but they're not a specialist in mental health. And you feel like if they begin that conversation and they can't support it, it's going to be a detriment to the person. Whereas all hospitals have some sort of liaison within a mental health service. They can all work there. And a lot of staff felt uncomfortable contacting a specialist mental health team outside of the hospital. They felt that all the other specialists in contact would be within that hospital, and mental health sits differently within that model. And they felt it won't. They felt unable to reach out to them because they couldn't see all their notes. They weren't sure who it was who they'd be dealing with. A lot of them only work Monday to Friday, nine till five. And it was very much looking at how do we support these people? What sort of crisis and contingencies are in place? But also being able to signpost, but having that confidence that someone's going to pick that up and. You don't have to solve that person's problems. You just need to be there to hold their hand and support them and guide them to the more appropriate service. And a lot of a lot of the people who listened found that really helpful. One in four people have a mental health problem at some point in their life. It's normal. It's everyone in most of that world will have at some point a mental health concern and ill health. And how do we support this? And it's validating that. It could happen to anyone. It's totally acceptable. We deal with physical health and we try to prevent measures, but it seems to be more crisis management how hospitals have been managing and using the service and using it much more as a preventative measure. Mm-hmm. It's been seen as a much more high-value care option for that role, and I've I've worked with a few different trusts looking at how they could do that and include it better within their wider work and looking at what training to provide them to make their referrals more appropriate
0: yeah i was just going to say is it do you think it is a case of um training um you know to kind of does there need to be wider training so people that maybe aren't specialists in in sort of the mental health side feel more comfortable at being able to to kind of help those that have have a condition
1: i think there is i think if it will manage a bit a bit like stopping smoking when that first came out all staff within trust were generally given brief advice on managing and discussing how to stop someone smoking i think there needs to be an equivalent of a brief advice for mental health just so you can work out is this person in crisis are they not and then you can then work out Where's most appropriate possible? It might be a voluntary care service, which can then pick that up after they've been discharged, but you have given that person somewhere to go. A lot of the time, people don't know where to go. They're stuck thinking about it by themselves. A lot of people who have these long-term conditions then become isolated, and it drives those symptoms to be much more severe, and then it's a lot more difficult to treat. I think there's something around supporting GPs and also secondary care and specialist staff in knowing what how does it affect different minorities. There's many minorities who additional stigma and challenges and trauma and they need to access services earlier than maybe someone from the white British population and it's looking at how do we support these staff in identifying that these people are more likely to face these traumas. They're more like they're more susceptible to be needing Therapy, so offer it or recommend self referrals. Look at how can we advertise these services to staff. And there's a lot of differences between nice guidance therapies and talking therapies. And I think it's helping staff understand what the differences are. I think there's been many people who've tried to support the NHS with providing stuff such as talking therapies, but they're not tailored to a way to. De- to deal with a long-term mental health condition, or something what's more complex, and then because that's they on expensive had as a GP what they've heard from patients, they don't recommend it. Whereas when it's done properly, it's been done following nice guidelines and done in a holistic and person-centred way, it's a very different experience. And I think some of that brief advice on what exists, where can people get support, would work really well. And I guess it's having them having the confidence of I don't know that find out and i'll come back to you because we i don't think anyone expects you to know all the answers and it's okay to say you don't if you then say but i'll find it out and i'll come back to you
0: yeah it, it's really interesting actually because um so i did a mental health first aid course last year um and it was one of the most interesting things i've ever done um you know, and, and I actually interviewed um, Georgina Watkins who ran the course on the podcast as, as one of the first episodes. And it was really interesting because she made a really good point about how, you know, uh, physical first aid, most workplaces have to do it. You know, everybody's got to have a, a physical first aider on, on site and things like that. But with mental health first aid, it they don't. And actually, if everybody you know, if that was treated in the same way as physical first aid and and people had to go and do these mental health first aid courses, there would be much more, many more people that actually felt comfortable to, exactly like you said, to signpost. The whole point of the course was about, you know, all these different places that you could help signpost people to and almost exactly like you've just said, almost kind of understand if someone was in crisis. Um, So yeah, I think it's, if you can get that training, um, sort of, across the country a bit wider i think it'd make a massive difference
1: yeah i know quite a few people who've done a mental health first aid training and that's been their experience it's helped them feel more comfortable more confident in having that discussion and being able to not be afraid of those discussions and they no longer then become difficult or uncomfortable because they feel more confident in being able to have that and they discuss it in their supervision they discuss it in their one-to-ones and they get extra support as needed and it just becomes much more normal and the norm and people feel more confident in approaching and discussing it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of the other topics you discussed when you were at Patient Safety Congress was um, assessing the quality of care in the home and and making sure people had the right tools to self-manage. Something we're quite passionate about at, at Radar Healthcare is helping to ease that pressure on the NHS by preventing people from going into hospital in the first place. So you know, things like wearables and IOT devices, um, but making sure they're properly managed and tracked. Um, Obviously, we've got, you know, the introduction of virtual wards as well now. So what are your thoughts on these and how can these be managed effectively to ensure the care is received in the right way, um, potentially, you know, outside of the hospital setting?
1: So in... So the, when I had this talk at the conference, I was joined by another panel member who had just been discharged from onto a virtual ward. And it was really interesting watching their experience. And it gave a lot of positives around, this was a person who had a long-term condition. They knew how to after themselves. They'd grown and lived with this condition for 30 odd years. They were quite confident in being able to administer it, but were given support and training and assurance on how to administer it safely and it worked really well for them. It meant they weren't they almost feared going to hospital because when they were they were in for weeks and it also always felt like their life were on hold. Whereas they were able to attend the Congress just the day after being discharged. They were could look after their own well being and management of their condition at home. And it was much better for them and their carers were confident, they'd been trained in how to manage and to clean the devices and ensure and so everything was done safely. They knew where to reach out to support and I think if it's done with that assurance and that support, it works really well. I know in Bradford we've just recently created our first virtual ward and they aim to have six patients to trial it and the feedback from there has been really positive. I've I've overseen some of those case studies and it looks really handy and staff feel more confident. I think there are a lot of fear because it's unknown, especially within staff and also from patients, but most patients want to be cared for at home and they don't like going into hospital and it's looking at how can we manage them to do it safely. One of the concerns we had in Bradford were around a lot of the wearables and that with self management, well, how does these people do it at home? A lot of them had English as a second language; they weren't very, they weren't computer literate. We have a very low reading age within Bradford. And looking at how do we support these people in managing their condition? How do we support them knowing where to go for support? We've had a lot of people just turning up at A and E, unsure what to do, and they weren't sure where they could go for support. So there were a lot of training there in being able to sign hosting the gateway that support appropriately. And it works really well for people when they're explained well, but I think it goes very much it needs to be thought through before it's implemented by the hospital and it's looking at what are the additional needs, those community needs and ensuring that we support that. Especially when we've got places like NHS Charities together what can help fund some of that technology to help people manage it at home. And we've got personal health care budgets that can help these individuals manage those needs at home. A lot of people will self-manage, but it's make sure we ensure that they're able to do it in a safe and quality way. We don't want to be providing a service what isn't as good as. It should always be as good as what you'd have been getting in hospital and supporting everyone. And I think there's lots of positives for it and there'll be a lot of learning and good practice learned from it and it seems going very well so far. I think it's only going to improve it, especially as the NHS start working with more specialist providers who have some of these skills and it's no longer seen as a us v them it's everyone's working together
0: yeah that's a that's definitely a key point I think that it's sharing information people working together um, and I think your point about uh, you know, sort of understanding it properly before it's implemented is really, really important. It's just because something works in one place, it doesn't mean it automatically works exactly the same somewhere mm-hmm. else. So, I think there is that element, isn't there, that you've got to, you have to almost treat every location as individuals in the same way as I guess you you do with people. And um, we're going to touch a little bit on health inequalities in a little in a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it is that that point of just making sure that it is right for that particular area and that location and, and how are people taught how to use things properly as well to make sure it is, it is is gonna be beneficial and not detrimental.
1: Yeah, and looking around some of that co-locations, if people have a question, where can they go? Could it be part of a GP practice? Could it be more local to that individual instead of always being at the acute hospital? It's looking at making it accessible and then you're going to get people to engage with it better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've touched on a little bit about your first-hand experience of, of community mental health services. So what has your experience shown you and what improvements do you think need to be put in place to enable people to make sure they get the right help they need, but also at the right time as well?
1: I think there's two key elements here. I think there's something around having open and honest discussions, especially within that initial assessment and exploring I think clinicians need to explain why they ask certain questions again and again. And I think a lot of times to help them get their understanding, but it comes across with patients, they're not listening, people disengage, they feel like they're being listened to. And I think especially within mental health, a lot of people have probably been told, you've got the stiff, stiff puff, stiff upper lip comments, or you've got men don't cry, you've got lots of things going against. People speaking up openly about it, and then they have a lot of past experiences being invalidated. And I think we need services. What are willing to listen? The become a safe space, to psychologically and physically safe space, to share that information, but also making aware that it's okay not to share if you're not ready, and that that's okay too. And it's it's taking your own time. It might take some time to explore some of these thoughts, but it's not belittling or it's and that you may have to pass it off to someone else and they might have to ask these questions again but it's explaining that to the person that yeah i can't deal with all this for you i'm going to pass it to, through to a colleague they may ask very similar questions but so that they can understand what's going to get you the right support and people will then listen to it and they will engage because they feel like they're being listened to i think there's something around a choice when i start when, when I start my assessment are told you can have this time You can start therapy, but there were no choice in medication. I really struggle with medication. I don't like taking medication. I had a history of self harming through taking medication, so I was very much against medication. But that's what we're offered, and I started overdosing and ended up back in hospital. It just seemed totally irrelevant to me, it didn't help me at all. And if I did, and then there were there was such a long waiting list for therapy, I thought I'll find some myself, I'll go through some IAPs, I self-referred there, but then I had the detrimental impact of, I've accessed it within the eight months, and now I've access specialist support. Whereas if it's been explained to me that I wouldn't be able to access the support I waited for, I'd have found an alternative. So I think it's very much being open and being clear with what people are able to access or what impact it has accessing one service and not another
0: it's yeah the um the the bit about medication there as well i think is really important because just because it works for one person again it doesn't mean it works for someone else um and i think we've got to be careful not to assume that the same thing works for everyone in exactly the same way we've just chatted about in terms of you know the um the virtual wards for example
1: yeah i think there's and a lot, of, a lot of symptoms are similar between different conditions and a lot of people have a lot of different concerns and there's many different side effects to tablets and it's what's important to them, what are the symptoms they're wanting to manage, what's the best treatment for them and one of the research projects I'm supporting at the moment is looking at pharma genetics, which is a test where they can see which antipsychotics work for an individual and it looks at what genetics how how does that medication affect for them? And it kind of rates something like a traffic light system. So, red would be ones to avoid, and the ones where they would work, but you're likely to have multiple side effects. And then green and medications that work quite well. And something like that would help inform that choice, give that person what's likely to work for them. And it gives you that understanding then in future, if, if that medication may have to fail, what alternatives could work for that person. And I think it's very much looking at. Even if we can't do it all now, what is the future? What could it be like? And how can we start progressing towards that?
0: Yeah, and that could be life changing for people as well, couldn't it?
1: Yeah, it's it's opens the door to lots of different ways of treatment, and especially when you're looking at long-term management of conditions, if you've got someone who will engage and is managing it better, it reduces the cost quite significantly. Iowa being prescribed antibiotics, which were very expensive and I really difficult to take. If it would have offered me as an injection, I'd have been much more compliant and it'd have been more cost-effective, but you couldn't get that discussion. No one wanted to have that open discussion. It was very much, this is the easiest way to do it, so this is what we're offering you. Yeah, it wasn't around what works best for that patient, it's what's more convenient for the service. But it's very much, if you have something what works well for the patient and then more engaging, it reduces energy need and reliance on other parts of that service
0: i mean there's there's clearly from everything we're chatting about you know the the communication side is is so important um and i know there's a lot more openness now around people talking about how they're feeling and it's you know it's obviously such a positive you know step forward but there still feels like there's so much more to be done when it comes to that understanding access and help accessing the right help um what advice would you offer to someone who was struggling to get the help they need in terms of you know reaching out and and kind of what would be your sort of your first steps to it
1: I think there's two points I'd like to make here I think there's one definitely around communication and just it's okay to talk I think there's a big fear out knowing where to talk to or who to talk to and there's some really good third sector and voluntary care services, which are there to talk if you don't want to go to a GP or if you don't want to go to a mental health service. There's really good therapeutic support within those community services, and there's a lot of specialists, and people who don't want to talk. With COVID, we've got a lot more younger people who've got mental health anxiety. We've got a lot of green and climate anxiety who feel a lot more confident texting. And then we've got places like Shout where you are able to seek some back support, there's really good crisis support through some of our other third party sectors and I think it's really important it's just open up to someone because even if they're not right they're the people who can help you find somewhere and a community pharmacy often has really good explanations of what mental health services are around there and anyone can refer themselves through to Improving access to psychological therapies to so the local IAP service, and while they might not be able to support you, it, it get, it's getting you through that front door. And I think part of the transformation works going on across mental health services within England will make that easier. It's much more around there's no wrong front door, and no matter how you access it, it will be there to support you. And it values the voluntary care services a lot more properly they're not seen as an alternative to NHS care, it's to complement care, and it's to provide some of that more long-term ongoing support. And there's I know most people who've accessed services, it's that ongoing peer support what prevents the isolation, it prevents those symptoms returning. And it's looking at how can we support services to be able to signpost and support people in finding them. It's And I think a more partnership working way, you're not just classed as you discharge back to your GP or you're being passed around. And if everyone works together, it feels more valued, but it's looking at, it's in to other places, look at it that way. So it's your terminology from one service to another. It's But it's also then your terminology from the government, they're looking at, I know lots of people who feel like they have to go to a mental health service when they're having their review for their benefits and they don't need to because there's lots of really good support there in the community and it's ensuring that they're being valued and seen as where well. the in it as support i think it's very much everyone working together to show that high quality care doesn't need to come from one particular service the right care is what's important and that can be provided by lots of different places and it's different in different areas it's you get tailored to your local community and GPs are really good at knowing what's in their local community and it becomes but there's no wrong door, no matter who you speak to, there will be someone there to support. And if it feels like you're not, I think it's very much then don't be don't feel disheartened if someone hasn't listened or they've not supported. If you feel able, challenge it. But if not, speak to someone else because someone else will be there to support you.
0: Yeah, it's it's almost that not giving up thing, isn't it? It's, you know, kind of that reaching out to anybody is is definitely the the best first step. And I think it's that, you know, we've mentioned about communication and how important that is. I think people assume communication has to be talking like we are today, but it doesn't, you know, open communication can be like you've said, you know, some people are more comfortable texting or being on a chat or something like that. But it's still, there's still those avenues that are there, out there to support people, aren't there?
1: Yeah, and I know a lot of people who are neurodiverse who do it in emojis and they communicate that way, check how everything is and the people who support them associate different emojis with different feelings so while they might not be able to physically say how it's affecting them, they're still able to communicate and it's someone might not melt through it all the time, but always them that opportunity to so everyone should always be included within their care and I think it's remembering even if someone can't at one moment in their journey, they're always going to be able to contribute at another time. And it's bring them along with you. Don't do something to someone. Bring them along with you, and make sure everyone feels valued and included. Because that way, people engage better.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's very clear from everything we've chatted about so far that you've got um you know such a keen interest in in kind of making sure that that people get that right help and and particularly at that right time. Um, and you've also got a, a keen interest in in health research and how health inequalities can affect health outcomes. Um, in fact, you're currently supporting a number of local NHS trusts to create a district wide response to address these. So, what's involved with this, and how can it help improve with with health inequalities?
1: Yeah, so I I'm currently doing things like kind of like four big focuses at the moment. What I'm supporting and. One of them is around LGBT healthcare, which we're looking at across the entire local district. And it's looking at how to serve services uh, provide a safe space, knowing that it's available there. But it's also trained staffing, understanding what some of those extra challenges are, and what are some of those barriers to access healthcare, what you don't see. And it's making people feel represented. If you're going to a waiting room, it's usually always a heterosexual white couple on the leaflets. There's very little discussion around anything what's seen as difficult. So within, our, within one of the wards on colorectal, they had lots of information around surgery, but then nothing around people who may, there were lots of information missing throughout it and there were nothing around how to take sensible steps to manage those conditions. and. I had a woman next to me on a round saying that it isn't just gay men who have anal sex. She wanted it. She were interested in anal pleasure and looking at how do people have these conversations. Because staff were unwilling to. It won in the literature. And you've got people using Google to try and find out how can they do that. And it's looking at how do you provide a much more open, safe space for people because people have these questions and it's a valid concern for them. And it's looking at how do we provide that aftercare and that knowledge. And we had within our South Asian community in Bradford, we had a lot of appointments being given to people while they were praying, so they would never be able to attend. So we're looking at why don't we target a different community during those times when they when there are as many barriers for them. We, there's a lot of barriers to accessing healthcare within some of these communities to start with. We don't need to be adding on more. And I think that's where some of the research projects have worked really well. And a lot of the time you've got a PhD student who's been supported by someone from the trusts, but then also by the universities. They may not have experience of those wards or those conditions. So it works really well having a care service user representative right at that early stage, helping them understand, this is what I understand of that medication. This is what it was told to me. This is how it was told to me. Is this how it should have been? Uh, these are, this is what's important to me, and looking at how we do that better. One of the projects I'm working on is looking at long-term use of antipsychotics and how it affects people's health, and looking at some of our control drugs, such as lithium, where it creates quite a significant reduction in life expectancy, but it significantly reduces quite significant self-harm ideation. But a lot of people then provide it long-term because it's, it's worked for them, But their conditions changed, and it may no longer be suitable, or the benefits may no longer outweigh the risks. And it's how like to create instances where people can have those discussions, and it's worked really well with a lot of different PhD students in looking at slightly tweaking their projects and looking at the wider picture and looking at how one thing supports another, and it helps them shape then, each other's work. They support each other. And the clinicians who are supporting those PhD students. It helps influence their approach, and I think it helps everyone feel it has more value, and it helps them engage in future with those research projects.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, that you know, getting involved with with PhD students and and helping with those research projects must feel it must feel amazing to kind of actually put. The experiences of yourself, of other people that you're you're kind of like helping, and almost know that those things can hopefully help improve things in the future for for maybe other people that are going through issues that are maybe similar.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the thing about a lot of people who have experience far care don't want it to happen to some to someone else. it's looking at how can we support that and. Very speaking to patients or carers or their family, you can work out what were important to them, what did they value, what was really useful for them. And one of the research projects I did were around low value care. So it were things what the NHS deemed as low value, so it wasn't effective. One of them were ways in with managing violence and aggression, and within Bradford, we changed that naturally, and it had a huge impact. And it was amazing seeing how those changes other places deemed as low value because they weren't seeing reductions as we had and we're looking at what's the approach is it being done as a cost saving tool or is it being done for patient safety is it trying to boost that in that patient's experience but by boosting a patient experience you also make it easy for staff and safer for staff no staff member wants to turn up to work thinking they're going to be assaulted if we can reduce and manage that aggression and start talking earlier, de-escalate more appropriately, it improves a better experience for both staff and patients, and that provides then that quality of care, what we needed, and it's worked really positively when you look at it that way. I think it's supporting people higher up within Trust and Boards being able to do that and look at that bigger picture. And I think that's one thing Brad has done quite well by having patient and care representatives it brings that voice straight to that board. You included as part of the board and seen as an equal. I think it's been able to support the NHS as a whole in accessing those voices.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, you. I think having that, that, like you said, that that patient voice, that person that has actually experienced it firsthand, is it's invaluable. Basically, it's you know, unless you have experienced it firsthand, then you sort of guessing. I guess um and you know when when someone doesn't get the care they need you know we know it can lead to trauma near misses complaints serious incidents um you know I think you've kind of touched on a lot there of of where healthcare settings can improve processes um to making sure people can access what they need um is there anything else that you think we can do to remove those barriers for for health inequalities around these these issues
1: I think there's a big part around working out what those barriers are, but it's working out within the micro communities. I think a lot of the problems is people, especially when you look at a trust level, it could be quite a broad area, you have very different communities across that area. And I think local authorities work really well there. They have really good health profiles of their local communities. And it's looking at how do we tailor our support to those micro communities, instead of trying to look at how do we create a service, fits everyone how do we tailor our service so it fits instead of trying to get people to fit into that and it's looking at people more than just one characteristic a lot of the time people say oh well we're not having people coming from a BAME background but they're ignoring all those other challenges and those other things that make up that person and it's that intersectionality what has a big impact and it's looking at how do we address that and how are asking people how would you like to access care especially now we've got much more options within Bradford 60 percent of their therapies become virtual whereas pre-covid it were all face to face and there's been a much higher engagement people are turning up the wait times aren't as long and people are having better health outcomes from it and it's looking at what can we do to keep changing what can we do to keep adapting and it's different parts of the NHS supporting each other I think from a patient's perspective, it's seen as one company, it's one thing, whereas when, when you delve into it local and you've got lots of different organisations, lots of different services working together, it's how do they share each other's voice to help each other ensure that everyone knows what's happening, ensure that everyone's got enough resources to manage what they need to, and work together and being open and, and having that, we're not doing so well, we could do with some help from you and supporting each other and I think there's something around that shared learning is looking at how you share it internally initially but then looking at how you share that then within that wider community and I think there's something about being open and welcoming feedback it should be you should be able to provide feedback anytime you want and in any way what works for you which can be done through a specific team or in a specific form if you've shared it, your experience with someone they should be able to escalate it for you and support you and it's make sure people understand where they can get that support to sh- hear their voice heard but it's ensuring that those people echo that voice instead of speaking for them i think that's something that i've supported our community really well i'll echo their voice and make sure it's heard by the right people they don't feel like i've twisted what they've said or oh, it's my words for them it's very much bringing that person's story to it and i think that's where the power is but i think it's ensuring that people do that well and it doesn't dilute that patient voice.
0: Yeah, I mean we we all played Chinese whispers when we were we were kids or whatever and it's you know, I think having that you hear it from someone else from someone else, it it's never gonna be exactly the same as hearing it directly from from that person. And also I think that, you know, that person actually feeling empowered to give their voice and actually it to be heard by the person that needs to hear it directly is is much more valuable than hearing it you know third fourth person down the line as well
1: yeah definitely and it's one of them if someone doesn't feel confident it's asking them how what would help you feel more confident in sharing your voice and it might be initially you having to share that story for them but feeding that back to them, letting them know what the outcome is, helping them be more confident and have some of that trust built back within that service.
0: Yeah, it's the choice thing as well, isn't it? It's it's what works for you.
1: Yeah, it's what works for you and how can we support you in the best way? What would help you being able to give this feedback or what's stopping you? And then at least then you identify your barriers and you can begin working to address them.
0: Yeah, definitely. So what advice would you give to anyone who wants to get involved in in something like you do in terms of a volunteering aspect or anybody that wants to kind of get involved in trying to help patient safety outcomes? Are there any kind of courses or training sessions or anything like that that, that you would recommend?
1: There's a few different options um There's a lot of information on NHS England's website uh, and there's future NHS what provides a lot of information, especially to patients on where they can gain some of that extra understanding. But it's also looking at who provides your local services. I think there's a key part is knowing what part of the NHS do you want to support, where do you think you're going to be best, and looking at who provides that service. And then contact them, let them know what it is you'd like to do. And i think a lot of trust is starting to become much better at offering that flexibility in how you can provide feedback and how you can volunteer and support them it's no longer just seen as oh you can work in a cafe for us you can do this you can take newspapers around it's bringing those skills and it's valuing those person's skills and if you don't feel you're being supported please raise your voice please make them aware that you don't feel like they're wanting to hear your voice because that's the only way they're going to listen, and hopefully over time it will become easier. And that, as those cultures change, it will become easier. But if one part doesn't want to support it, there will be another part who has begun that journey, and they will be more willing and to, to supportive.
0: Yeah, it's, it might be baby steps, but it's, it's definitely definitely moving in the right direction. I think, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you might have to bang on a few doors, but you will find one more answers and response.
0: And that's the most important thing.
1: <laughs> Never give up trying.
0: Definitely. Um, so Matthew, at the end of every um, episode of What the Health Tech, we ask everybody what their What the health tech moment is. So these questions started off as a bit of fun. We've done wonderful stories and we've heard so many from, from across people that we've, we've interviewed across health and social care. So what is your What the Health Tech moment?
1: I think my what the health tech moment would be um, just after Bradford Pride last year, I went to support the acute hospital at first. Every time I went there, and they thought I was one of the directors. So everyone being really friendly to me was just as they were beginning to relax all their COVID restrictions. I'd walked in, I knew their CEO, so I was with her. And then everyone else had no idea who I was. They thought I oh, was one of their new governors. And everyone's like, oh, do you need this? Do you need that? And then I walked into the meeting room and went, oh, you've come to the wrong place. And it took come about half an hour for to realise who I was. And it worked really well. And then I'd gone to explain around some of the support, what were being done by NHS England in understanding the needs of the LGBT community. And it was... It was so interesting to be seeing what it's like by being different and being seen as a different way, and the amount everyone was like, oh, do you want a badge? Do you want this? And they're like, oh, you can't have that now. And it's like, well, I've got it now. You've gave it to me. Yeah. So I end up with all mm. of these like pride in nursing badges, pride in nursing lanyards. Like, oh, well, you're not a nurse. You can't have that now. No, nope, you've offered it to me now. And it was a really good seeing everyone have that human side, and it brought. I think it brought a very stressful conversation for a lot of people but it made them really like you and it made everyone feel they could just open up. And it was the first time I've met them, it brought a new experience for them and it got rid of a lot of anxiety for them and it's built a better relationship for everyone.
0: Sometimes you just need that really good icebreaker, don't you, to um, to definitely just get you into it?
1: Yeah, and it's something I never let them forget.
0: <laughs> I bet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> My guys are like, I'm one of their lead governors. <laughs>
0: Just think of all the decisions you could get made.
1: <laughs> I know, it makes so many improvements for people.
0: <laughs> I absolutely love that. And it's definitely not one we've we've heard before. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, thank you to everybody for um, listening. Thank you to Matthew for joining us this week. Um, join us next week for another new episode. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. And if you have any questions for us or our guests, please email whatthehealthtech at radarhealthcare.com.